said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Alright, here we are. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. Actually, it's the first edition in which I know it's called Tangentially Speaking. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that I'm your first, Chris. <laughs> I say that to all the all, I said to all the goys. What the hell is that? All the boys, girls. If you mix girls and boys, you get goys? Yeah, is I think that, that's Yiddish. Yeah, it's very Yiddish. Uh, anyway, I'm here with Reed Mahalko. Is that, did I pronounce yeah, your last name good. correctly? Uh, what's your website? Tell it's us about readaboutsex.com. R-E-I-D exactly. aboutsex.com. Okay, cool. And Reed is a sex geek. Uh, how sex, would you describe it, yourself? You know, when I, I was just on Lisa Ling's Our America for uh, on the Oprah Network. Um, was that so, for the polyamory That episode? was for the swinging episode. Oh, man, she's um, going for yeah, it. And, uh, and so I was the um, sex and relationship expert. Uh, and then, uh, but you know me as a, as a sex professional sex geek. Right. Um, and I probably get called other names too. And you know. do what? Like what other names do you get <laughs> Exactly. Um, can, can we use expletives the on this? The bastard um, who slept with my wife. Exactly. <laughs> but you, you were watching. Why are you still angry? <laughs> exactly. Um, you asked me to. Exactly. Dude. It's like, um, the, yeah, I mean, I'm basically, I'm a sex and relationship expert. Um, anything that has to do with getting people to speak about sex in more empowering ways to speak about relationships and intimacy in more empowering ways is, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, is fair game for me right. and under my jurisdiction. Um, I just want to help people not go through what my mom and dad went through and, and what they subsequently put my brothers and I through, which is two people who loved each other very much, but didn't have any, any powerful ways to work through their upsets in their relationships. Hmm. So I got to see what happens to a marriage when, when all those hurts and wounds, you know, build up that scar tissue, emotional scar tissue. And then, uh, in my, in my quest for, for figuring out how to love committedly like they did, but not like they did with all, right. with all that, you know, door slamming. And so they stayed, married. they stayed together till the, <clears throat> till the bitter end and in in weird ways like it their relationship did get better later but it really felt to me like it was because of exhaustion and surrender rather than self-expression and, and celebration uh but and, and we can talk about this uh, you know during the interview too but you know the, my parents and the generations before like they measured success in relationships by duration yeah so they won because they were together till they died. Right. But I don't, I suspect they were not as happy or as self-expressed as they could be. And so a lot of their happiness came from my brothers and I not being, you know, psychopaths and fucked up. Like they, they, they sourced their joy of their relationship from their, their kids. Did and, they, did they <clears throat> live to see you become a world famous sex geek? Um, yeah, actually a little bit. I mean, I mean, I mean, as you know, we can put air quotes around world famous, but, um, yeah, they, I, I, I was really lucky. I grew up in a family where my mom and dad really meant you can be whatever you want to be right. and what we want you to be is happy. So it, unconditional love for the kids, but not necessarily oh for my God. each other. Yeah. My mom eventually would, would go on to drink my dad and trying to solve her unhappiness 
you know, was very classic American male and that he worked harder to try to bring in more money right. to yeah. solve that problem, which is not what my mom needed. Right. Um, and then my dad's business failed and he, he hid it from the family cause he was trying to save it. Oh boy. You know, it's, and it's, this is not a, an unknown story in, in American society and, sure. and it's probably well known in other cultures, Spain and otherwise. Sure. So I think that kind of origin myth with a couple of other key moments really brought me to a place where I'm like, I want to understand what they're doing wrong and not, and never do that. And so here we are two guys. My parents have been married 52 years. Mm -hmm. Your parents married forever. They were 43 years together or something like that. 45. And we're talking about the pitfalls of monogamy. Among other well, yeah. I mean, and this is the thing is like, I'm, I'm also a big proponent inside of the, the non-monogamy communities to really, and you and I might, you know, we could argue about this, but I really want, I want those of us who are into non-monogamy or people who are considering poly or swinging or whatever, you know, whatever your kink is. Um, I would love for America not to look at any one self-expression in relationships is being more evolved than the other. Uh, no, we're not going to argue about that. Okay. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. First off, I just think it's bad positioning. Sure. Like if poly is, if polyamory is really a legitimate relationship choice, then monogamy should be too. Right. Regardless of if you think you're more evolved than the other, just put a lid on it. Like don't, don't bash people. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, from a, not to, not to get too scientific, but, you know, I try to make the point in Sex at Dawn that evolution is not progress. Evolution is simply a constant dance of adapting to a changing environment. So to say someone's more evolved than someone else, I mean, you know, I know that's not what you mean, but I think people confuse evolution with progress. They think that something being more evolved is better. Bullshit. Yeah. You know, I think there's there's def there's a bell curve and, and there are people on both ends of the bell curve. Some people can't possibly be sexually monogamous. Other people that fits perfectly. Well, yeah. And, 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 and standard deviations aside, like. I really think what is evolved air quotes around evolved is you figuring out what works best for you. Right. And then dating your species. That's, you know, I always quote you when I give presentations, I gave one just two days ago in Hollywood and I quoted you and I, I credited you as well. Date your own species. That's yeah. such a great way to think about it. Figure out what kind of animal you are and then stick with your own species. Yeah. And that's not being judgmental of any other species. Or at least stick within your own phylum, if, if, if that's the right. I mean, it, and this is where my, my seventh grade biology teacher would smack me upside the head if he could. Um, yeah, I mean, because you know what? Because this is the big challenge when I'm coaching people um, who, are, who are in relationships mm. and have been in relationships for a while and maybe have kids and mortgages and a lot of reasons why, pragmatically, it's just easier to stay together. Right. Um, they're asking me like, okay, so, so if my partner's not my species, now what? Right. You know, and if we're not measuring the success of relationships by duration, now what? You know, and, and that's, I think that's kind of where I'm really geeking out and being challenged is like, how do you get a zebra and a tiger to cohabitate pe peacefully and find their self-expression? Right. You know, you have the choice not to stay together in our society nowadays, you know, divorce is a lot, it still gets stigmatized, but it's a way less stigmatized. Yeah. Um, we have lots of examples of kids growing up healthy in divorced families, right. just as we have a lot of examples of kids being really fucked up 
growing up in families that stayed together. What I like is examples of couples who have been divorced who remain close friends, Mm -hmm. you know, which comes into this respecting the other species, respect that it's legitimate to be a zebra, you know. Joseph Campbell described this sort of thing as detribalization. You know, it's a very sticky concept that's been stuck to my brain anyway for about 30 years. You know, recognizing that you are from a tribe, recognizing that that tribe has a limited, somewhat arbitrary sense of beliefs and, uh, you know, whether it's the spiritual belief or the food you eat or whatever. And and if you're the kind of person who's seeking a a broader understanding, detribalize, move Mm -hmm. above your tribe, recognize your tribe as one among many, learn about the other tribes and then get this more general sense. And I think that if people can do that, it gives them uh, power to accept and respect what you would call other species, right? So like, okay, I'm not monogamous. She is. We can work something out possibly, yeah. you know? Well, it's always, it's it's kind of, um, the two things that come to mind is uh, I'm a big Bruce Lee fan from back when I was a, a kid. And uh-huh. uh, it's like absorb what's useful. Yeah. You know, like take the stuff that's working and leverage the hell out of it. Um, and don't don't spend too much time beating yourself up if a particular yeah. technique or, or style of, of whatever doesn't really work for you. Right. Um, in, in the relationship sp- space, like doesn't really make you happy. Right. Um, and then, uh, because the other, Bruce Lee did this with martial arts. Yeah. He took I mean, from lots of different traditions he, to form his he own. He was a pragmatist and an opportunist. Right. Right. And, and an opportunist, I think with integrity. Do you know he was the Mamba champ of Hong Kong when yes, he was eight? I do. Did I do see, know this. Did you see the recent film? I am Bruce Lee. Yes, I did. See that, that was directed by a good friend of mine from Vancouver. That's why I was in Vancouver this summer. I was developing a TV show with Pete McCormick who directed that film. Okay, great. Yeah. It was actually, I really enjoyed it. And that, and that, I mean, I've been out of the martial art community for a long time now, like, I don't know, like maybe 20 years. Um, and, uh, but that was still a big piece of my finding out who I was. Cause I was, I was the fat seventh grader who wore the Morgan yeah. Mindy suspenders. And I mean, legitimately I have You're a dating, I have a picture. Yes. Morgan no. Mindy. Yeah. You yeah. Know, nanu, nanu. Blast from the past. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go back even further than that, man. I, in seventh grade, I was watching David Carradine on Kung Fu Thursday yes. nights at 10 yes, p.m. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I loved it. And what, and you, in what grade? Third grade? So oh, seventh grade seventh at that grade? point. I was born I, in 62. Yeah. I was 68. So yeah. you and I are, are, are in the same, you know, within the same uh, generational, we, we we are favorites of a lot of the same music, probably. Um, not disco. Not disco. Oh, disco was hard for me. Three Dog Night was the first record I ever bought. Really? First record I ever bought was from like Ronco Records, where you you, you, you sent in a penny, you got 11 Oh, 11 yeah, records. to join the club. Yeah. And, then, and then you can quit and join again exactly. later. Yeah. Um, I got, uh, my first record I ever got was... Um, was Kiss uh, Rock and Roll All Night, ah. and it came with a sticker that a had sticker. all the, had all the the faces of the band, you know, band members on it. And nice. I remember that that was prominently displayed on my bureau. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to say I started off well with Three Dog Night, and then I veered into sentimental crap like Bread and Dude, uh, I love Bread. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, song, the song about the tree, the letter. I found a letter yeah, underneath, underneath the tree. Come on, makes me cry every time. Still, oh, it's one of horrible. my favorite. For you, for you listeners, you're so patient with us. You're like, what the hell? Get back to like tangentially re- speaking, re- relationships. Well, this is about relationships, right? It is. You know that whole um, sappy '70s. Isn't it funny? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's no. the whole, the way the seventies was so sappy 
and yet so free love sex. You know what I mean? There was this strange sort of both extremes simultaneously in a way. Ah, God, now you're going to get my, my brain really going now. Um, By so, the way, we're in Hollywood and it's 1030 in the morning. It's 1030 in the morning. So, We've got some coffee. Um, and Bailey's. I've got, I've, I'm a big fan of Bailey's. <laughs> so I've, I've twisted Chris's arm. We're drinking coffee and Bailey's, which is in Spanish. It's called a... Carajillo de Bailey's. Carajillo de Bailey's. Um, yeah, so... So here's an interesting thing about relationship stuff, right? Like speaking of the '70s, and now we're in the you know in the aughts. Um, I think things repeat; they come and go in waves. Yeah, you know, sure. and you as a as an anthropologist and a and a geek, you know, I like looking at patterns. Not that that you can predict human behavior, but you can certainly not be surprised at where things seem to be going. Right. Right. They've been here before. We, they've been here before. And where that's interesting to me is from a martial arts perspective, right? If I know what you might do and I can time it right, there's a moment, there are, there are opportunities where we can knock, change the, traje- the, the trajectory of things. Right. Whether that's actually possible, culturally speaking, I don't know. Whether we're changing it or just sort of going along for the ride and thinking we're changing yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, the 1920s, 1920s Harlem, you know, the Harlem Renaissance. Right. You know, there was a lot of bisexuality, a lot of non-monogamy right. going on Jazz there. age. Jadget, jazz age, cultural renaissance, so to speak. Um, you know, and I think the 60s had a different flavor, the late 60s and into the 70s. But we could look at that as some kind of cultural renaissance of sorts. Um, and I think now because of the internet, well, certainly now because of the internet, but certainly I think AIDS was that thing that came in sideways and knocked us off course. Mm. Had AIDS not happened, um, I would have been really interested to see where we would be right now. Sexually speaking, with the conservative backlash that's going on yeah. now, which has a lot to do politically speaking. And, I'm, and again, I'm not a political analyst and you'll never see me on CNN talking about politics, but you know, the religious right, the conservative right and their war on sex. Um, and Marty Klein wrote a really interesting book called the war on sex in America. Um, you know, that's a very concerted, strategic approach to how you you know attack liberal thinking mm-hmm. at a very weak you know at a weak point which and Marty Klein talks about this in his book and I just saw him keynote at the Catalyst conference in in Long Beach um because America still won't talk about its sexual proclivities very openly if you like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna this is Marty's example, but if I'm gonna if I'm gonna write legislation that will increase taxes on you as a Chevrolet owner, Chevrolet owners might get you know, might uh, organize a, organize and be right. like, you know what, I'm a Chevrolet owner, <clears throat> I pay my taxes, right. that's not cool. But if you're gonna shut down strip clubs or mm. BDSM dungeons or right. who's gonna stand up? Who's gonna stand up and be like, you know, I'm a consumer of strip clubs and BDSM. Right. Uh, that's not cool. Right. And so there's a really interesting and the way he framed that I was like, ooh, like that's strategically really genius on the part of yeah. other people. But again, like I'm sitting here as a 
you know, in my geeky way being like, can't we all just try to love one another? Mm. Like, can't we all just figure out what makes us happy? And if everyone's being happy, doesn't that mean that most of us won't be killing each other and all these other things, you know? Perhaps, but it also means most of us will be voting Democratic. That's the problem. You want that hatred. Uh, well, this is the other if, piece, if right? Right winger. Um, Marsha Baczynski, whom, whom you know as well as another great relationship educator, she, she and I were geeking out one day and, you know, I was talking about, you know, liberals and conservatives and it's like, it just doesn't make sense to me. And she goes, well, that's because you're coming at it from a perspective of open-minded and closed-minded. Mm. And I was like, I was like, tell me more. And, and she's like, well, open-minded for, you know, for lack of better phrases, right? I haven't come up with better words for these, but open-minded people are basically, in my opinion, people who will reassess their evaluations and opinions when presented with new information. Right. Close-minded people, not so much. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of closed-minded liberals yeah. and progressives, and I know a lot of open-minded conservatives. So when I had that frame of like, oh, so I'm, my sex education, my kind of, you know, geeky, goofy, John Stewart meets Dr. Ruth approach works really well for people who are more open-minded, mm. more flexible in their right. thinking. Cause I give them new information. And they're like, huh, how can I implement that right. for conservative or closed minded people? Not, let's not use conservatives. Cause you know, we talk liberal conservatives, but people who are more closed minded um, or, you know, firm in their belief systems, whether you're a progressive or, or a conservative, my new information for them may not be as welcomed. Right. You know, and if I start trying to challenge them with facts and information and be like, no, like take a look at the inf information. It seems to me that their, their brain wiring is, is very resistant to, to reassessment. Yeah. And yeah, and at, the, at the risk of offending the right wing uh, listener that I've got, I think there's only one probably. Uh, I do think that there is, I agree with you, there are a lot of closed minded uh, progressives. And I wish there was a better word for closed minded because it right. sounds too negative. Rigid, yeah, yeah. You know, firm yeah. or something, whatever right. that word is, right? Right. But, but you know, there there is one wing of the American uh, political body that accepts the legitimacy of science and one wing that doesn't, right? I mean, y the whole idea of new information being relevant is sort of a democratic left-wing thing in this country, I, and in the right, it's not. Yeah, and, and, and but again, like I would say that, I you know, let's put air quotes around that, because I know a lot of Republicans who are scientists, and what I think, yeah. what I think has happened is the Republican Party currently is paying back a lot of debts that they owe to the religious right who which all started under reagan yeah this idea that that, you know? that we can i mean we can trace that back to reagan yeah, yeah. Um, that's and, what i was thinking when you said it would be interesting to look at how aids the absence of aids would be reflected in in current political life reagan happened before aids happened mm-hmm and so to me, the, the right wing backlash was already well underway when AIDS came into the Absolutely. picture. Absolutely. And they, of course, used it as they use everything. You've read Naomi Klein's book. Uh, uh, what's what's it called? Where she talks about how how certain conservative political mindset uses crisis. Uh, something about the crisis. Uh, oh, shit, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but uses everything like the, the, the I know hurricane the in yeah. New Orleans. They use that as a way to shut down social programs mm -hmm. and move poor people out and all that. Yeah. yeah, and they're very good at using things. But anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked on No, politics. this is like, I love talking about this stuff because, you know. I want to get back to Mork and Mindy. 
Well, okay. <laughs> well, a great example of representation of sexual politics in action. Uh, Mark and Mindy? <laughs> <laughs> the suspenders? Yeah, I mean, so, so I, see, this is the kind of interview I like. This is when you I get on television. What's next. Yeah, when I'm on television, we never get to actually have this conversation. I have to just <laughs> deliver my message points and, and then we cut to commercial. Um, yeah, so, the, I mean, on the Mork and Mindy stuff, like, I was that fat, dorky seventh grader. Mm. You know, I nicknamed myself in seventh grade Captain Twinkie. You nicknamed yourself Captain, Captain Twinkie. Twinkie. Is that a reference to something? I liked I don't get? Twinkies, oh. but now looking back, that explains the role. There were clues. Body. There were clues all along my my upbringing where I'm like, oh, I was destined to turn into this person. <laughs> you know, it was like Last Starfighter. You know, like I was really good at this video game, and and I was destined to be, you know, to save the universe. Now I'm like, wow, like here are all these double entendre and sexual references. Uh, I was right, destined to turn right. into this guy. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Hampshire. New Hampshire, small town, small town, Pelham, New Hampshire, which is southern New Hampshire. It's near the Massachusetts border. Um, my brother Ryan and I went to Pinkerton Academy in Derry. Mm-hmm. Ryan would go on to be like the biggest thing in, in um, New Hampshire football ever. He just got inducted into the New Hampshire Football Hall of Fame. Uh, at, at UNH? Uh, no, he he actually um, went on to play football for Notre Dame. Oh, really? And then I went. Uh, you know, I was <clears throat> well known in the football community in New Hampshire. So you've got like macho football guy and Captain Twinkie. Well, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Captain Twinkie would eventually turn into the the virginal captain of the football team and president of NHS National Honor Society, and then, wow. and then I would be recruited by the Ivy Leagues to play football. Really? Ah, so um, you didn't. So you were fat seventh grader, but you, I you got into, into shape. I turned into you know, like in yeah. eighth grade. I started growing and, and losing a lot of weight and getting right. into karate. For I, those of you who, who don't know what Reed looks like, he's uh, like got big muscles and uh, big dude. I'm, Big, I'm strong, I'm like, I'm macho like, looking I'm dude. Like five thirteen, you know. Five thirteen. I'm six pounds. <laughs> no, I'm six one. Six one. Um, yeah, and and so I I would turn. Oh, oh five thirteen. Yeah, so Sorry, I, yeah. I was thinking weight. Like how the hell did five thirteen? It, it is early this morning, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, yeah. and the Bailey's, Bailey's and coffee haven't kicked, kicked in yet. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so but this is what's really interesting. Like I was that <clears throat> that guy who didn't get any, who was really awkward around girls. Mm you know, was kind of spazzy, you know, like, although you were, you said the captain of the football well, team. Well, and I, I turned into the captain of the football team. Like this is captain Twinkie, you know, oh, turning into the transformation, the captain, the transformation, which I credit a lot to karate, uh-huh. to martial arts, because I finally found something I was passionate about that made me happy. Which style did you study? Um, my first black belt was in Taekwondo. Taekwondo, which um, is Korean, correct? Yeah. Korean, right. Korean martial art. And then in college I would train under, a. Uh, Bob McKittrick, who was a had several black belts in Ishinru karate, which was an Okinawan system, mm. and and he was really I credit a lot of my sex education stuff to him because he taught me and a couple of my other peers. He really taught us how to teach, like how to think. He was one of those instructors who's like he's like I want you guys calling bullshit on me. I want you guys, you know thinking how I can do this better. Mm. And and so he really taught me how to think around martial arts and physicality. Something which, about courage too. 
standing up in front of a class and saying, tell me when you think I'm full of shit. That's yeah. Yeah. And he, he was basically the black approach. sheep of his karate family and then mm. kicked out and then would return like almost like a Kung Fu movie. Like he would return years later <laughs> with knowledge. They had never Joseph seen Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and Bob and I would become really good friends and we still are. Um, and he would, he would go on to become a general surgeon for the army and then do some other cool things. Wow. Um, but, uh, but so Bob taught me how to think. And what's interesting now is like when I teach my sexual ergonomics workshop, it's all martial arts. Cause sexual ergonomics. Yeah. Which is like, how do you, how do you fuck without hurting yourself? And, and, and if you, if you have a partner who, who enjoys a lot of force or, you know, like getting, getting boinked really hard, like, how do you generate a lot of force in a very short amount of space? Not that short, Reed. Come on. Well, <laughs> well you know, in like nine or ten inches, right? Isn't that right, Chris? Those are Irish or, inches. We, <laughs> <laughs> it's like dog years. <laughs> it's a oh seven to one God. ratio. <laughs> oh, I'm still going to use that. Uh, you know, this is something else we have in common. I studied martial arts as a kid. I was going to say small penises. <laughs> <laughs> small Irish penises. <laughs> Mihalko, that can't be Irish. No, it's it's. Austrian. <laughs> Austrian, all right. Um, martial arts. <laughs> martial arts. Yeah, I studied uh, Okinawan Kung Fu. Oh, right on. Yeah, yeah, in Pennsylvania. Strange, strange situation. My, I studied about four years, I think, and I was teaching toward the end. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I didn't have a black belt in the style. I, there were two different tiers. There was like you could have a black belt in the school, mm -hmm. which meant you, you were teaching. Yeah. Um, but then a black belt in the style was a whole different thing. So I got the black belt in the school and I was teaching. I was 15, the first thing I ever taught, actually. And uh, long story I won't go into here, but essentially my teacher killed his father. And his father oh was, uh, you know, the, the like top expert in that style. It was called Pukalan in the world. He was this creepy, weird dude. And uh, my teacher was his son, came home one night and found the father stuffing his mother's head into the toilet and the two of them got into this physical fight the mother ran into the bedroom took the daughter locked the door went into the bedroom and the two of them went nuts and at the end of it uh the father was dead the son had a hundred and some stitches they had oh, taken no. samurai swords down off the wall the police found them bent at right angles oh my god the son had needed stitches in his esophagus I don't know how the hell that happened. Well, I, I think a sword, we, we could maybe sword like down his throat. I don't know. I mean, Jesus, it, it was a hell of a wow. So I was 15 and that oh, was the end of for, my for lifetime television. Yeah. And then my family moved away. So I moved to Connecticut and like that whole thing just blanked out for a while. So it took me a while to sort of uh, reintegrate that back into my life. And one of the ways I did it was studying Aikido. Mm. which I love. I love Aikido. Yeah. Because what's scary, I love Kung Fu, right? I love the, the discipline of it. I loved the, the sparring, the, you know, the, the, the spiritual aspect, yeah. the bowing to the floor and the respect, you know, for your elders and the teachers and the tradition. I, I really enjoyed that. But um, then when, you know, it got so ugly and crazy and bloody there, I thought, Jesus, you know, I've, I'm like, and as you know, when you do martial arts, you train, to respond to certain attacks without thinking. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes up and like 
puts you in a chokehold, you yeah. just do it. You yeah. don't think about it and you end up killing somebody. And yeah. I was like, whoa, I felt like I was carrying loaded guns around. You yeah. Know? So that scared me. And then, but then when I did Aikido, I, I, I got this whole different vision of martial arts that mm -hmm. was so beautiful about maintaining peace as opposed to, you know, ripping someone's eyes out. Yeah, I was very lucky in, in my 16 years and living in New York uh, for a few of them. I studied with a guy named James Berkeley on the Upper West Side, who's one of Steven Seagal's peers coming up through the ranks. Mm. And uh, talk about like awesome, you know, like martial art characters from your past. He had a handlebar mustache. He was a big guy, but about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, handlebar mustache, and would always be smoking a cigar while we were training, <laughs> like out of the side of his mouth, you know? That's funny. And, and my God, he was good. But, and, and again, like here, you know. <laughs> cigar oh on my the mask? Yeah. Really? What a character. Loved him. Loved him. Yeah. Sweetheart of a man. Um, very good martial, I mean, great martial artist. And... And so I, I'll work this back to relationships. Watch this. Um, I loved training and learning Aikido, which is a, you know, for those of you who, who aren't martial artists is, is, is a system like based around defending yourself or has its origins in, in combat against swords. So samurai swords in particular, basically, let's like I'm going to attack you with a three foot long razor blade. Right, you're you have, not going to block it with your forearm. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah, you know. So the the, the Okinawan or, or Japanese approach of I'm going to you know block it is not really um, pragmatic, <laughs> um, unless you're wearing some sort of armor. Yeah, and even then, it's even it's, then. It, it's it's, it's uh, maybe not a good idea. Um, so that 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 elongated kind of you know approach to how do you defend yourself against a sword is very different from my Okinawan roots of, you know, I want you in as close to me as possible. Right. Um, you know, very much based on a, a, you know, a culture where you had a bunch of fishermen who were short, mm. you know, and, yeah. and weren't running around with swords, low center gravity. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and then, you know, even before that was Taekwondo, which was a lot of, you know, we could debate, but you know, the general hypothesis is that it was, you know, the, the aerial kicks and things like that were a lot to do with trying to get soldiers off of horses. Oh, um, and so a lot of this high kicking and stuff just kind of evolved. And then, you know, Taekwondo would move on to become an Olympic sport, which changed it a little bit and, and put the emphasis just on kicking. Um, so looking at all of these things, <clears throat> Aikido was interesting for me to learn the principles but it wasn't really my the style for my body type. Uh, back to Bruce Lee. Yeah, right. and so I was much better in in, in an Ishin where I was basically trained for street combat by by Bob, my my sensei Robert McKittrick, um, because and he used to be a New Jersey State Trooper. So mm. for him, you know, kicks to the head. We only did that when somebody was on the ground. Like mm. that was the joke, right? Right, right. Um, so there was a very much, a very much kind of a pragmatic. This is how to how to survive, and it doesn't have to look pretty, which mm. Bruce Lee would agree with, right? Um, but me finding a system that worked for me and having the permission to take what was useful and 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 disregard what wasn't for me. But to know it, because I could, if I was a teacher, I could pass it on to somebody else. Like for me to teach you how to fight like me is mm. me being not the best teacher in the world. I right. need to teach you how to fight like you. Right. Exactly. So this all comes back to sex education, where it's like, as far as your relationship style or relationship self-expression, 
what are the techniques or the principles that work across all martial arts, across all relationships? Mm. So a sense of balance, useful for all martial arts. Right. You know, emotional balance, useful. Now I sound like I know what I'm talking about, staying right? Staying centered. Yeah, yeah, staying centered. Mm. Really useful, no matter what your relationship style is. Right. Right. Um, not reacting emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. How to, how to be transparent. Mm. You know, that would be the opposite in martial arts. Like don't telegraph, you know, don't telegraph your moves, yeah, but, but in relation. Like water, my friend. Yes. Right? That's transparent. Like a finger pointing away to the moon. <laughs> Do not concentrate on the finger or you miss all that heavenly glory. <laughs> um, I love that movie. Enter the dragon. Rent it now. Um, so this idea of finding, your self-expression yeah. in relationships and then, you know, go spar, go date people who like sparring. Aikido. Aikido. One of the things I loved in Aikido was the idea that you're working with this partner who's throwing you around, slamming you to the mats, and you feel gratitude toward that partner. Mm -hmm. And the partner tests your limits. It's never to hurt you, but to let you feel where your limits are. Yeah. In a sense, maybe in the best relationships, there's a sense of testing one another's limits, of, yeah. of being simultaneously supportive and challenging. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. You can donate to the show at feralaudio.com. That's F-E-R-A-L, like a feral dog, audio.com. You can also use the tangentially speaking Amazon.com affiliate links for all your Amazon purchases. I get a kickback, and it doesn't cost you anything. It just takes a little cut from Amazon's profit margin, which is good for the world and good for my Christopher Ryan college fund I think we're all still paying off our college from the 80s uh, check out the other shows on feralaudio.com while you're there like uh, conversations with Matt Dwyer and my personal favorite the Duncan Trussell family hour which is off the hook week after week you can subscribe on iTunes leave us a review uh, the rankings will always help and uh, stop by uh, sexadon.com and, and check out uh, the book, the interviews, videos, all the, all the stuff I've got up there. All right. Thanks. Back to the show. I think we're allowed in our culture to have that approach or that opinion around child rearing. Mm, like you're supposed your kids are supposed to challenge you and somehow that's going to make both of you better people right but i think we forget that that's true for relationships too mm. and some people will claim well you know we're our fighting is is good for both of us but it that the sparring turns into abuse if that makes sense right you know to, to keep with the martial art analogy which may or may not be useful right now um but i think there's definitely this added piece about effort versus you know, hard work, extraneous effort, you know, you can, you know, like a car, I'm going to switch analogies, but a car driving up a hill, the engine has to work harder. Right. Relationships every once in a while are going to be hard work. Right. They're just going to be hard work. Nothing's wrong versus driving around with the parking brake on. <laughs> There's yeah. this extraneous effort. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's there. Right. That's, that's not good for anybody. And that work's never going to solve your problem. <clears throat> but if yeah. you've always driven a car with the parking brake on, you don't know the difference. Hmm. And so that sluggishness, that drag 
after a while you just get you acclimate to it right and so that's normal right and so i think a lot of people are struggling in their relationships um and there's extraneous effort there versus just the the hard work that you need to put into stuff every once in a while. Yeah. Distinguishing between the two is key. Yeah. And that's where you come in. Yeah. And that's why I just try to point things out. And, and this is where I, you know, I'm pretty much a pragmatist. I'm like, well, you know, if you guys are fighting that much, why are you still together? Mm. Or, you know, why are you doing that? Why do you keep dating people like that? If the outcome's the same, right? Like, do you really expect them to change? Right. Yeah. So let's get back to how you became this guy, right? Because all right, you're, what position were you playing on the football team? I was I was uh, at Brown. I went to Brown University. Um, I chose Brown over Harvard, which was interesting for me in, in high school because I, I really wanted them to announce Reed Mahalko will be attending Harvard, Harvard University because yeah. I didn't I hadn't heard of Brown. And those are both on football scholarships. They're, well, the Ivy Leagues back then, and I think it's still true today, don't give scholarships. Oh, they give academic scholarships, uh, okay. um, and so I didn't have any scholarship money attached to me attending in the way that my brother who who went to Notre Dame he had a, f- a five-year full ride wow you know boom nice um so you ever thought about the fighting Irish that that's kind of a insulting to the Irish um, you ever heard the George Carlin thing he, he does this whole bit on that he's like hey what the fuck with the fighting Irish you know I mean you don't have a team called the lazy Mexicans or the chiseling Jews you know what the hell the drunken fighting short dicked Irish that's that's where the Irish short dick thing comes from that routine he's like, what the fuck you know anyway sorry another no, tangent well yeah but I mean again like uh, well yeah that's a whole conversation about PC and, yeah. and what's politically correct what's not but yeah I mean I haven't heard anybody ever complain about the fighting Irish. Yeah. You know, like, you know, you take your, take the leprechaun off the helmet. Like that's our, <laughs> that you're appropriating our culture. Um, yeah. The, uh, a Brown. So you okay, went to Brown so instead w- of Harvard. I Why? Went, um, I was an artist. Um, I was uh-huh. really big into comic books. Uh-huh. Um, and Brown had an art department and a partnership with RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, which is a really famous art school. Talking heads. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, I chose Brown so that I could take my art classes at RISD. Nice. And as fate would have it, uh, my sophomore year, uh, the end of my sophomore year, the department, you know, the dean of the art department kind of called me into his office at Brown. And he's like, he's like, read him. I'm like, you know, Professor Feldman. Um, I don't know if he's still the dean there, but he was a sweet, sweetheart of a man. Uh, I'm like, what, what can I do for you today, Dean? And he's like, well, I'm noticing that you're not taking any classes here at Brown. <laughs> <laughs> really? None? You haven't, you haven't taken any art classes here yet. I'm like, yeah, I'm taking all my classes at Ronald School of Design. And he's like, you, you kind of need to take some classes here, too. I'm like, why? Because <laughs> yeah. Brown was a fine arts department. Uh, and, and I was a comic book illustrator. Right. You know, so I was right. taking classes with Chris Van Allsburg, who, you know, who, who illustrated and wrote Midnight Express and all these other uh-huh. amazing books. And David McCulley, who, who illustrated and, and wrote the book How Things Work. Like, I was taking my classes with all these people. And, and, and Professor Feldman was, was very smart. He's like, well, you're going to have to. Like, you have to take classes here. And I'm going to make you the, the student liaison for the, the art department's gallery here. And I looked at him. I'm like, I don't really have a choice, do I? He's like, no, not really. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> He's like, I want to see you in this building more, the art building. I'm like, okay, Mr. Feldman, Professor Feldman. Um, so, so the reason I went to Brown was because of the art. I played football for a year, 
and uh, and came back the second season just to make sure. But I wasn't happy freshman year playing football. I think I kind of you know got football you know quote unquote out of my system in high school. Cause was I, it the culture of football that you were no longer uh, into? You know, honestly, it was in, in high school. I played both ways, and there's a double entendre in there somewhere, or, or um, quadruple. I'm not quad, sure exactly. Yeah. And and uh, so I in college college football just it didn't feel challenging to me oh um you already so, checked that box yeah and i i was done i, I effectively you know was was done with football huh. um and then i so i came out the sophomore year just to make sure no what position were you playing i was nose guard nose guard yeah Man, so i was on defense grinding yeah in and, the trenches and i'm not a and i mean i'm a big guy You're not that big I'm, yeah. yeah but i'm not like notre dame big i mean right. those people are like you know raised in labs and right. genetic mutants yeah. right yeah. but and they're amazing because they're like they run like a you know a three nine you know three yeah. seven forty and they've got a 4.0 and they're studying biochemistry like it's it's yeah. scary there yeah. some of the the, the athletes who are also amazingly smart and, and sweethearts of, of people. Hate um, those guys. Hate me them. Too, me too. Bastards. And uh, so that's why I turned and went to sex education just to, to make them all uh, jealous. Jealous, exactly. <laughs> um, very healthy. They still get laid more than you do. <laughs> so, you know, I, I played football for a year, came back the next year to do, you know, double sessions just to make sure I, it, was, it wasn't freshman year that right. was making me unhappy. It was very clear that I didn't want to play ball anymore. And then just threw myself into, into art and then also studying karate because at that point I'd found uh, my sensei, Bob. Um, and it was in college that I was, sophomore year, was still in love with the, my first love from high school. And um, still in love with my first love from, from high school. And, uh, and then, um, you know, fell in love with another girl in one of my art classes and didn't know how to reconcile the two because being in love with two people at once meant I wasn't in love with either or wasn't ready to settle down. And I was still a virgin at this point or sophomore year. I wasn't a virgin. I lost my virginity in, uh, in, uh, freshman year. We we never found it. Um, we're still, we're still (laughs) looking, still searching, still searching. So my i started deconstructing love like what's going on and i thought that my genius move was to introduce the two girls together oh. and i and i went to my sensei i went you know went, went to you know to sensei mckittrick and I'm like, I'm like and we were living he and i were actually sharing an apartment with a couple other students off campus because bob was in med school we were all uh wow so um so i go to bob i'm like i'm like bob i'm in love with two girls at once and and he's like, okay. He's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, they're so amazing. If, I, if they just meet each other, they'll get it. It'll all work out. Yeah. I'm like, what do you think about that idea? You know, this is me as a sophomore. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you think? And he, Wide-eyed. Yeah, and he's like, that is the worst idea ever. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's got to work. And we, um, you know, two weeks later, I had them both sitting in the same room. It was incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable and, and a really bad idea. Um, but what it, taught me later was it was the 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 seed for the transparency piece right now i was just gonna say not necessarily a bad idea if you're dating your species if they were both polyamorous for you it was a great idea yeah you know and and so even what i what i'm trying to say is that even an idea that turns out terribly can in fact be a good idea yeah so 
what happened specifically in the meeting? I mean, were the women fighting for for possession of you, or just pissed off that this was happening at all, or what? No, I mean, it, what ended up happening was it was just incredibly awkward, and neither of them were really happy to meet each other. Mm. Um, and you were there. You didn't I was say, there. You yeah. guys should talk. Yeah, and and, and, and I'm just like, see, I'm like, hey, meet each other, and I'm in love with both of you, and yeah. <laughs> you two have going a lot well. in common. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't going well. Um, How old were they? Same well, this was, this was, uh, I guess this was first semester junior year. Right. So, what, I'm not even 21. I'm 20 now. Yeah. You know, so we're all in our 20s, um, early 20s. And, and polyamory was not even... Didn't exist. Hadn't even, was not coined as a word yeah. yet. I, I'm, I'm sure there were, I know for a fact that there were people practicing polyamory. Sure. But it wasn't, it wasn't forever. called that. Yeah. And... My impulse to put everything on the table, like to, to get all the cards out on the table, which is now what I counsel people, regardless of if you're poly or monogamous or whatever. It's like, mm. listen, if you're not having the conversations that you are afraid to have with your significant others, you're having a, a, a relationship with a, with a lowercase r, like you're walking on eggshells. You're, yeah, you're not being real. And, and you know, I'm sure you've heard this a million times when you talk to sex workers, prostitutes, dominatrixes, mm -hmm. whatever. One of the things that they say is the reason people come to me, it's not really the sex or whatever it is we're doing. It's more that they can be real with me. Yeah. And how sad is it that we live our lives with people we can't be real with? Yeah. And that's the whole purpose of relationships. So, right? so transparency is a really big guiding principle to yeah. me in, in what a healthy relationship is about. And, you know, and me, of course, being a public figure and being very transparent about my personal life, I also have to remind people that you have a right to your privacy. Right. There are lots of things that are nobody's business. Um, and you can always yeah. play that card. And, right. and if somebody gives you a lot of guff for that you tell them Reed Mahalko said suck it um, but <laughs> but in your in your intimate relationships your love relationships I really believe that while you need some sort of privacy to be healthy about you know everyone needs their own private space um, or diary or alone time or whatever that looks like for you it's different for everybody I do encourage you to build up the muscles in your relationship of having the difficult conversations, you know, have the conversations with your partners that you think will end the relationship because over time, that's the only thing I think that's really going to save you guys. It's what you're not saying that's ruining your relationships. That's eroding your intimacy. Right. And that goes for the positive stuff too, as well as the negative, like withheld acknowledgements over time. That's right. just as de detrimental. Like we right. need to hear, we did a good job. Right. We need to hear, I appreciate you. Yeah. We need to hear that stuff too. If you think your partner knows you love them, you know, then go, go tell them because even if they know it, they need to hear it over and over again. It's just, it's just smart. Um, so that transparency yeah. piece is really big. And then it's up to you guys in your relationship to figure out where, where you need your privacy, mm. but that privacy probably shouldn't be relegated to the things that I'm afraid to tell you. Yeah. That's a cop out. And, and also discretion is not the same thing as lying, mm -hmm. you know, like, People often when I give interviews, pretty much every interview asks me about 
my marriage with Casilda, right? So are you guys polyamorous? Are you swingers? Are you this or that? Mm -hmm. And I always give the same answer, which is that our relationship is informed by our research. <laughs> that's, a that's a great answer. <laughs> the, the first person I gave that answer to was Dan Savage, actually. And I'm sure Dan loved that He laughed his ass off and he said, he said, from now on, that's going to be my answer when they ask me. <laughs> my relationship is informed by Chris Ryan's research. <laughs> <laughs> I might have, somebody tweet that, please. <laughs> Which, so, which your, your Twitter is at Chris Ryan Chris PhD. Ryan PhD yeah. yeah. And then mine's at read, readaboutsex.com or at readaboutsex. Um, that's a good one. I'm going to use yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, suck it. Read says suck it is, is a good yeah, one as well. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's not as targeted perhaps. No, no. Uh, you were talking, oh, you know, another thread that I, that I, uh, you know, I talk to people in the sex world, but I also talk to people in the consciousness, altered sure. states world. Cause before I wrote this book about sexuality and my dissertation, I was studying shamanism a lot and ethnobotany and, and that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. Um, and when you were talking, I was thinking about, uh, a conference I went to in 99. It was, it was, uh, fantastic. I was, ex I was invited all expenses paid to an ecstasy conference at the Dead Sea Hyatt in Israel. Wow. Yeah, I met some great people there, including people who were using ecstasy and psychotherapy. When you were talking about having these difficult conversations, when you're working with a couple who have been avoiding these conversations for mm -hmm. years, ecstasy would be so useful in a case like that because, as, as you probably know, the, the main effect it has is removing the fear around honesty mm -hmm. right it's such a useful thing in psychotherapy it's a shame that it's it's illegal to use it in uh in the states these days um but it's not in other places and it wasn't for a long time in california for yeah. over a decade it was used widely with great great and, results and and also i mean for for people that are listening who don't know what we when we say ecstasy you're like oh do you mean just feeling really good we're talking about a drug um <laughs> yeah. and yeah. for those of you who are like ah that's drugs aren't my trip i got a but, feeling i don't have many listeners who don't know what ecstasy is well you never I'm, know I'm you gotta guessing. define your terms you're a scientist come on um but the uh, the the other thing is too like there's lots of different ways to create ecstatic states i mean yeah. for you as somebody studying shamanism and 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 how group ecstatic state can really anchor and 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 um cement bonds right um and this is my my partner allison moon whom you know who and and for those of you who, who are listening chris is wearing um my partner allison's t-shirt that says this is what a feminist werewolf looks like um, you, you can go to lesbianwerewolves.com and look at the book that Allison wrote, but she used to be a, a she was majoring in neuroscience uh -huh. and was geeking out about ecstatic states and how that uh, creates group cohesiveness. Which is sort of what we're arguing in Sex at Dawn. Yeah. You know, that the group cohesiveness of our band level ancestors was largely was not only around sex, but sex was one of the things. Sure. Dancing, sex, yeah. you know. And this is when I talk to plans. and this is when I when I talk to other people, I'm like, you don't have to have an orgy to feel closer to the to your friends. Like you can go out dancing. Sure. You know, you can create these other um these other kind of events or experiences that, that create the cement the cohesiveness. Yeah. Um and that's really useful and it's really useful in pair bonding. Like right. when's the last time you and your partner went out dancing right. or, you know, 
saying karaoke until you you couldn't laugh anymore because your sides were hurting so much. Like right. like when's the last time you you let loose with something more than just alcohol? You right. know, I love I love my my booze, but at the same time, like you know, you don't have to go on a on a on an acid trip or have an orgy to feel right. closer to people, but. You know, sitting in front of the television, that's not going to not it. usually going to release the amount of, of, right. of, you know, hormones into your bloodstream that that promotes those kind of deep that's emotional true. experiences yeah, and relationships can become so pedestrian and, you know, people forget to go out and, and have those experiences yeah. that provoke that chemical response. Yeah. Uh, when I was Kisilda and I traveled throughout Asia backpacking for mm -hmm. a while and did some crazy shit there. And, you, and you're right. It's. I mean, the travel itself is interesting in terms of bonding, but also, you know, uh, just riding on a motorcycle together, feeling fear together is, yeah. is a very powerful bonding mechanism. By the way, I just want to say in, on before we get off ecstasy, I'm not recommending ecstasy to anyone, uh, especially because normally what you're offered in clubs or on the street or whatever is cut with some really nasty stuff mm -hmm. and there are all sorts of in europe you can send it to a testing lab and they'll give you the results so you know what you're taking yeah you. so ecstasy is not something where you can trust the person selling it to you it's mm -hmm. very difficult to find pure mdma and the stuff they cut it with unfortunately is pretty bad so mm -hmm. i just want to make sure nobody takes that as an endorsement of street x yeah or or like hey honey we're having a rough time you know chris ryan said <laughs> 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 Take two of these and call me in the morning. Yeah. 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 But, but the idea of like, like I love the, what you just said, like, like the experiencing fear together, mm -hmm. you know, the riding the motorcycle, you know, just those kinds of, again, like it, it, you said it, like relationships have, be have become pedestrian yeah, and, and then people's sex lives become pedestrian. So let, let's get into and we've we've sort of covered where you came from yeah. in a way through Brown. When, when last we left Reed, he was sitting in his in his in his dorm room with, finally got with the two with the two women that he he fell in love with, and they were not happy. And they weren't happy. Yeah. So so that pretty much sank both those relationships. I take um, it. You killed two birds with one stone. There, it, did you? It, I I continued dating both of them for a while. Oh. Um, and felt really awkward about it all. And I really do think that that was a species situation. Neither one of those women was Polly. Right. Um, and, and so I just kind of, you know, took them by surprise in that, Hey, yeah. you know, meet each other. Um, but what it did do was it really started me looking at, because then it was, you know, it was the first time I was having sex with two women, you know, um, Consecutively, you never got them into bed together, did you? No, no, that was a bad idea. And you know what? I really think I probably suggested that as the solution in that in that room, which just made it even worse. Um, hey, you got to go for it. Well, <laughs> and the off chance that it works, right? You never know. Um, so, but what it did was it had me as my my high school first love in our relationship. You know, went our separate ways, and we tried to remain friends. And I started embracing my promiscuity and exploring that with a lot of shame because I thought I was going to be a virgin until I got married. I was saving that for my, my wife. Were you raised in a religious tradition? No. Well, uh, the tradition I was raised with was, was uh, Lutheran, Protestant, um, and congregational. Um, and my mom was fairly progressive, though conservative in, you know, sex after marriage is a lot easier than 
you know, sex with a lot of people before marriage. But she was a big proponent of my brothers and I dating lots of people to have the experience of figuring out who we wanted to be in a relationship with, which was pretty advanced back then, you know, for, for a woman from the Bronx, um, Hmm. who, who also grew up in Connecticut. Uh, so my mom really got a lot of base basic programming in for us to be open-minded for us to respect women my mom was very much a feminist although i don't know that she identified as it right um and uh and so here i am you know junior year in college working in a bar as a bar back starting to feel less you know like the fat seventh grader and starting to figure out how to interact with with women, mm-hmm. living and with your mentor, living sensei. with my sen- yeah. you know with Sensei Bob, um, and then you know starting to kind of step into my sexual renaissance in a very very clunky way, right. um, but well intentioned. You know, like cooking breakfast for my one night stands because you right. need to eat too, and, right. and treating them like human beings because my mom taught my brothers and I how to treat women and people like human beings. Yeah. So <clears throat> so this idea of trying to figure out how relationships work and now starting to be like questioning love and monogamy and and basically what it is is i kind of caught the deconstructionist bug and started deconstructing everything and then reassembling it Mm. and and taking things apart again and and just like trying to understand everything like that's Mm. the geeky part of me right um and noticing patterns and then being in the bar industry like talking to people about their relationships all the time because i had cultural permission Mm. and then what would end up happening is after college i would move to new york to to become chuck norris you know i was like i'm gonna become an actor um and if i if acting doesn't work out i'll i'll work for Marvel Comics and, and be a comic book illustrator. And then... Um, this is what year? This was in the early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah, so I was in salt and Pepper's None of Your Business video. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm the, cow, I'm the cowboy. I'm the person wearing a thong and chaps. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> did that make your mom proud? It actually it did. And it made my niece the queen of 7th and 8th grade because her oh, uncle yeah. was in the salt and Pepper video in New Hampshire. Nice. Um, so I started, you know acting and actually making a living off of it oh, nice. while bar- bartending in New York the Doing whole time. music videos? No, any, anything or? that... I, I was the cornball actor in, in New York City and basically every casting director knew me because if something came across their desk and they're like... We need a farm man. boy. No, they're like, we're never going to find any actor who would do... <laughs> Call Reed Mahalko. That guy will do anything. He might do it. If he thinks it's funny, he'll do it. And I did a lot of funny, dorky, you know, running around New York, New York City in a jock strap for Jolt Cola. Like, I was, I was basically a corporate shill for... You're um, an ex- exhibitionist, aren't you? Um, I'm not. You're not. I'm an edu- This is the interesting thing, right? I, I have no problem being in front of people. Uh-huh. I can be shy. Like, I can be the awkward, dorky seventh grader who doesn't know how to talk to people. But I've front-loaded it. Like, I, I know that everybody else is pretty much stuck in seventh grade, too. Hmm. So I might as well step up to them and be like, it's kind of awkward at this, this cocktail party, isn't it? Right. And people are like, yeah. Right. Um, and if you're going to pay me, uh, you know, then I'm even less shy. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just a whore when it comes down to it. Yeah. Um, but... Aren't we all? What it? Yeah, aren't we all? We just um, argue over the price. Right? <laughs> it's Winston it's, Churchill's it's, famous it's, thing. Yeah, it's not if you are. It's it's. Are you a good whore or not? <laughs> um, so basically, I 
was doing my acting and had a producer for a big soap opera in New York that I was working on um, suggest that I start charging for my relationship advice. Really? Yeah, and I was like, is, is this... That's this? great. So you're working on a soap opera. Yeah, I'm working on a soap which opera. Which is all about relationships yep. and entanglements that we get into. <clears throat> and you know, a lot of the, the soap stars are boinking each other in the dressing rooms oh, really? in between. Can you say the name of the, the show, or is that not um, cool? Well, I was on a lot of them. But, so uh, I was on Guiding Light. I was on Another World. I was on um, wow. one, uh, All My one, Children. One Life to Live? Was no, I think it was All, I think my, was all children. my Children. All, we say All My Kids. Um <laughs> And, uh, that's fantastic. You know, I, I would do a little bit of comedy on the daily show. You know, if you do, if you go to daily to the daily show website and you do a search for the Thursday, the Thursday, T H E R S dash day, Thursday for the ladies, you'll see the videos that I was a part of. Um, and, uh, and so I was having all this fun, hmm. um, and making a little bit of a living, still bartending to, to fill in the gaps, um, still having all these relationship conversations with people as a bartender. Right. You know, and, and conservatively speaking, I probably had, in the 20 years I was a bartender, I mean, I've easily had 150,000 conversations, easily. Right. Just doing the math conservatively, I've talked to that many people in that 20 years. Mm. Um, and then the, the producer at Guiding Light uh, was like, you know, you should charge money for your advice. And I'm like, does this have to do about my acting? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Are you trying to get me out of, off the <laughs> yes, show? Exactly, Reed. I've got some career advice for you that does yeah. not involve acting. We want you to quit your day job. <laughs> um, and then, and, and she was like, she's like, well, you know, it would be nice if you could act better, but <laughs> but you give amazing advice, and and do you notice that like everybody comes and talks to you in between takes? about relationship stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but that's because I'm the bartender guy. And she's like, mm, this is different. Right. And so she was the one who, her and, and a good friend of mine, uh, who's a, who was a director on the show, Adam Reist, um, they were the ones that, that put the, the seat in my head. Mm. And then two years later, uh, I guess like a year, year later, I would, I would design my first relationship workshop, which failed miserably. Um, and then the second workshop after that was Cuddle Party. Right. And you're, you developed this whole concept of Cuddle Party. Yeah, right? cuddleparty.com for, uh -huh. for people who want to check it out. And it's, it's a communication workshop around intimacy and non-sexual affection. Right. And, and how to get more touch in your life. And, and the Cuddle Party rules are the basic rules for how you create safety for yourself mm -hmm. and then invite other people into that safe space. Right. And that's a really interesting and quick formula for creating connection and, and, and intimacy right. with people. Right. Um, and that's that formula or those little communication rules form the basis for a lot of, a lot of all of my stuff, because, you know, being able to speak up about the sex you want or opening up your relationship or having kids, like being able to create safe space for yourself so that you can have those difficult conversations those are skill sets that are useful in mm. every walk of life. Sure. And so while I'm running around the country teaching a blowjob workshop, I'm still modeling and dropping in all those elements of communication because aside from the skill sets that are required to give a good blowjob versus, you know, eating pussy versus whatever. Are you bisexual? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm bisexual. I, I, I would identify as queer, which is really code for ask me more. 
Um, yeah, I've, I've never been completely cl- clear on what queer means. I just assumed it's like yeah, none I, of the above. Yeah, I, I identify when I'm when I'm on television because I just think it's funny to say this is I identify as a queer polyamorous slut. So for me, I'm I'm a slut, which means I'm very promiscuous. Mm. Um, and the way I describe that is it's just as easy for me to get to know you having a conversation with language as having a conversation with our bodies. Right. And for me, you know, they're both kind of neck and neck for, you know, which makes you feel more excited and right. more comfortable. Communicative. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like, so I don't, you know, that's, that's my definition of, of a slut. Polyamorous, you, you know, is the whole consensual non-monogamy for, for lack of a, of a shorter definition. Um, and then queer to me is code for ask me more, which is really a, the beginning of a conversation about how do you identify around gender and how do you identify your sexuality in accordance to the, the gender of the people that you sleep with. Right. So, right. you know, if we look at gender as not just male or female, but you know, there's other, there's gender queer, like it right. gets really com yeah. it gets it gets geekily complex because people are now in our culture deconstruction deconstructing the idea of gender identity indeed um and so people who know to ask well what kind of queer are you you know those are the people that i tend to partner best with right because we have shared geekery around deconstructing (laughs) that so so for me it's also that, that i use that label because i'm fishing for queer people right who are interested in me and this right. goes back to relationship transparency is i really think you should be trying to scare people away hmm. because the people who you do not scare away are the people you should now start considering to hang out with or fuck or whatever i i, I have experienced that so much in my own life when i started doing my dissertation right i mean I, i'm heterosexual but mm-hmm. wish i were bisexual but i'm not um when I started working on my dissertation and I'd meet a woman, I was single and I'd meet a woman in a bar or whatever. And, you know, of course, the first thing we talk about, what are you doing? I'm working on a PhD dissertation in psychology. Oh, what's it about? It's about how monogamy doesn't come naturally to human beings, right? About half the women would just be like, okay, Check, please. see you later. <laughs> I'm out of here. Have a nice night. Yeah. But the half who hung out were really interesting women, you know, yeah. and they want to you know, tell me more. Right. And so, and I, you know, like most guys, I didn't understand that you maximize results by quickly filtering out the people that A, you probably aren't going to end up sleeping with anyway. B, even if you do end up sleeping with them, you're not going to have a good time and neither is she. And C, even if you do have a good time, somebody's going to end up, she is going to end up with her heart broken because you're, there's a misrepresentation going on, yeah. right? And you're never going to be her, boy, her boyfriend. Well, so and this is the other thing. Like get you, it out you, there. You, you pour into that people who don't know how to manage their um, their uh, bonding, their uh, transference, um, imprinting, people who don't know how to manage their imprinting when they're having powerful physical experiences, sexual right. experiences, yeah. you get, you, you risk the situation of you guys meet, you, di- you know, maybe you're not the right types for each other, but you go and you have a kick-ass night, you you know, fuck the brains out of each other. Um, and then maybe you do it the next morning again. And then all of a sudden you're, you're just soaking in your chemical bath right. of, of 
hormones that are designed to have you imprint on each other because it's good for evolution, you know, for mating. Like people, for the most part, don't know how to handle their their liquor. Air quotes. You know, they don't know how to handle their their their, yeah. their imprinting hormones. I was thinking you got to learn to drive while drunk. Well, <laughs> there's a whole joke there about you know. Well, okay. So, but the idea of you know having hookup culture, hookup sex, or even just dating and having sex, people start to fall in love before they've actually vetted whether we're a good fit right. to be in a relationship. And yeah. once you fall in love with a good person, it's really hard to break up with them because culture has taught you, and and because of the metrics of du- duration and you know our great-grandparents, if you fell in love and married a good person, you were lucky. Yeah. So we're we're conditioned not to break up with good people, and there are lots of good people out there that are horrible fits for you, right? For relationship, right? So, and and I have this this theory that it's not proven at all that that you know quote unquote you know sluts like healthy people who are modeling healthy promiscuity, I think they probably imprint a little differently um, or not as quickly, yeah, and so casual sex or you know friendship sex is less um rocks their world less it doesn't mean that the connection isn't as deep or as important mm. but they, they can navigate they can drive while drunk and it yeah. doesn't freak them out yeah I, and that's just my theory on that you know jesse baring you know he is a researcher just wrote no. a book called why is the penis shaped like that oh really yeah i should Great put you in touch with book. him yeah. yeah he's he's a very interesting guy he's done a lot of research um and he's writing a book now about um fetishes oh good so he's he's interested in the strange side of, of sexuality sure. and all that well when you when you jump into the waters of what's erotic and why it's erotic and separate and start looking at there there's things that you think of or scenarios in your mind that turn you on and then there's sensation that turns you on and you start you know uncollapsing the two right really interesting uh jack morin m-o-r-i-n oh, wrote a great the erotic mind yeah he wrote a good love book. That book it's it's, a, it's the book's great information it's a little dry yeah for my style of ingesting information too, but most of yeah, what was in there stuff. was good stuff i remember he he has the simple formula that uh, passion is the result of attraction and an obstacle yeah Attraction plus an obstacle equals passion. And, you know, again, people don't understand that. That's the whole Romeo and Juliet complex, right? Once you remove that obstacle, you get married, you move in together, whatever, Mm -hmm. the passion diminishes. Have you talked to Esther Perel yet? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Well, she's got a mating in captivity. She's pool with her in New York. (laughs) (laughs) She's hilarious and smart. And her book, Mating in Captivity, for those of you listening, is is really worth the the download yeah. or the buying it yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say about Jesse Baring is uh, he and I were recently talking about something very similar to what you were saying about the imprinting. He was asking me if I had noticed any overlap between polyamorous people and autism or Asperger's because he'd been finding a lot of People who he would sort of, you know, just having high functioning Aspie. Yeah. And and what I said was I had I mean, it's all anecdotal. You know, we're talking about people who come to see me talk. Right. Those are the people I've met in the world, basically. 
And I have seen that a lot of those people are high IQ people working in non-traditional jobs, mm -hmm. right? A lot of them work from home. A lot of them are programmers, hackers, you know, in Silicon Valley somewhere doing like what we would consider to be sort of, uh, you know, progressive, very information, technological kind of stuff. They're questioning all sorts of definitions in their lives, not just in their sexual lives. They're, yeah. you know, they're the way they live. They're into alternative energy. You know, they're doing all sorts of stuff. So I don't know. Have you, you I, seen I anything would, there? I would say, um, not being a neuroscientist nor yeah. playing one on television. But you sleep with one. Um, so but I don't. Exactly. That counts. <laughs> it's awesome. <You> some, <laughs> some, oh, my God. Um, my wife's a psychiatrist, which gives how me all... How do you feel about that? So, oh, <laughs> I, I was on an airplane once, right? <laughs> I'm on this airplane, and the uh, they you know they make the announcement. If there's a doctor on board, please you know, alert your attendant. And nobody does. And they make the announcement again. And nobody does. And then the the two stewardesses are standing next to me. And the one says, "What are we going to do?" And they're, "I don't know. There's no, I guess there are no doctors. Oh my God! What are we going to do? I don't know how to do. It. What are you going to do? I don't know." And I'm listening to this, and I said. Um, Excuse me, I'm not I'm not a medical doctor, but I teach in a medical school. If there's something I can, you know, maybe, and they're like, "Oh, thank you, come with us, come with us." <laughs> and it's like I'm not a, I taught English in a medical school. You the know? archetypal, the reluctant hero. <laughs> exactly. Metaphor is enacted in <laughs> now. Like play one quest. on TV. Exactly. So they take me up, and and essentially what's happening is this guy's having a panic attack. Yeah. Because he had had. Um, uh, deep, deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. And he was afraid it was happening again. And he was just freaking out. Yeah. And they wanted, and the stewardesses didn't know how to take his blood pressure. Apparently they called in, you know, to, through the radio and they uh -huh. said, take his blood pressure and get his heart rate. And they didn't even know how to do that, which is absurd in a trans, or trans oceanic flight. This was yeah. from Europe to LA. So I took the guy's blood pressure and his heart rate and talked to him and Call him, I'm a psychologist, so I was qualified in some sense to do that. Um, anyway, why am I saying that? Oh, because my wife's a doctor, so yeah. I, in, in, a, in a crunch, <laughs> I, can, I can jump in and take your blood pressure. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Christopher Ryan Saves the World. <laughs> what bullshit is Christopher Ryan spewing this week? Tune in to find I know out. what the word carburetor means. Let me take a look at your car. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think that red wire, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you need a bomb defused? Yeah, I'll take a shot. Anyway, what are you talking about? Near, uh, we were talking about uh, Aspies. Yeah, because I mean so, the imprinting you were talking about yeah. sounds. So this is this is my my take on the Aspie idea. Like you know, and people in the poly community are maybe high functioning, you know, Aspie type folks. Um, what I think it is is people in the poly community usually come from from areas of life where thinking things through methodically is something that a lot of them have in common. Hmm. Critical so, thinking. Critical thinking or what I call the deconstructionist bug. Right. If you're if you're trained or or love looking at systems and breaking them down and trying to see where where there's wiggle room and where things aren't working and the incongruities. Right. The where the logic doesn't pan out. Um, if you're somebody like that who likes to question belief systems, you might be led to to considering non-monogamy and then you might find oh that's actually kind of a good fit for me either even if it's just politically like i know monogamous people that are politically poly right they're just like yeah i'm, I'm monogamous with poly 
dependencies. You right, know? right. So and and, and they're, and they're not even monogamous. monogamish. Like they don't have sex with other people, but they like they like the idea. Right. And they're like, that's a good idea, but in practice for me, right. Not that's not how I live my life, but I ascribe to those beliefs. Right. Definitely. Listen, I can't let you go uh, without exploring a little bit the bisexuality because I know this is a contentious issue. You know, Dan Not Savage got in a lot of trouble yeah. with his his comments on bisexuality. Essentially, what he said was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what he said was, in his experience, uh, almost all the bisexual men that he had met were essentially gay and having trouble dealing with being gay. So they, they were sort of using bisexuality as a way to segue or to make excuses or whatever. Bisexuality is a trouble. Yeah. So, I mean, in this process you were describing, at what point did you start to self-identify as bisexual? Um, well, my, my bisexuality, uh, this is a hilarious story, um, and people can actually download a, 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 a longer version of this story on, on the risk podcast, the risk. which is a storytelling podcast. Oh. I think it's, I think it's risk.com or the risk show.com or something like that. <clears throat> um, I talk about my, my bisexuality origin myth, um, which basically came from, I was, I was at Brown. I had to take time off cause I couldn't afford school. I started you know, bartending more, um, to make money. And then a, a friend of mine, uh, got me into stripping and so I started stripping and the money back then and for the most part still is in stripping for, for gay men and gay bars. This is before you were running around Manhattan in a jock strap. Exactly. <laughs> but, 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 but makes sense why the jock strap didn't bother me. Um, exactly. So, so I remember my exposure to, to queer culture, to gay male culture. I'm dancing in these bars being like, wow, like I didn't know that guy doesn't look gay. And right. that, oh my God. Like, and I was, I grew right. up in New Hampshire with not a lot of exposure to gay people that I knew of. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'm in college with a little bit more expo exposure to diversity, but now I'm like in a club with lots of gay men and being like, wow, this is a fascinating. And now my, you know, my geekery is, is coming out and I'm like, this is neat. But you still consider yourself straight at this point. <clears throat> yeah. Cause right. it just, that never occurred to me. Right. But, so the way this story ends is I'm dancing one night and I'm like, noticing just like how comfortable I feel and being like, wow, like I must not be homophobic, you know, cause gay guys are trying to, you know, they're, they're st stuffing money into my, my thong, but also trying to cop a feel. And I'm like, stop that. Don't do that. If you, if you want to touch that, it's going to cost you 20 bucks. And like making <laughs> jokes about it. But I'm like, wow, like I'm, I'm not really put off by any of this. Like I feel really comfortable. And I, mm -hmm. and I had this moment where I'm like, wow, like how cool that my mom and dad somehow raised me in an environment where I, somehow they got the programming in that I'm not homophobic. Right. Are your brothers homophobic? No. Are you, by the way, where are you? How I'm, many I'm brothers? Second, and... second, second brother. There's four of us. I'm the second boy. Second from the top for the oldest. Yeah. And so, uh, and I remember dancing. I'm in my thong and I'm, you know, dancing on a bar or wherever I'm dancing at, at this club. And I'm like looking out over this ocean of gay men, you know, doing their dancing at disco. Um, and I'm just like, wow, I'm really not homophobic. That's amazing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it occurs to me, I'm like, I wonder how not homophobic I am. <laughs> and that idea had never occurred to me. Wow. And then, you know, two, two months later, I'm driving home from a, a, a birthday party gig for two gay men and, and their friends. 
and and we had the, you know had a threesome after the gig and i'm like driving home being like wow i am really really not homophobic <laughs> extremely not, not homophobic, homophobic. Yeah. and it still wouldn't occur to me until years later that well like i think i must be bi because i you know i had had several explorations right. with with people with penises right um <clears throat> and was just like okay like it's not okay like it's not a big deal not a big deal that's um, that's both wonderful and probably i'm guessing very unusual for men well it's it, it, common for women i you know what well, i mean i think that's cultural though and we can there's some neuroscience that says it might be you know hardwired a little bit more mm. but what i think is is that that bisexuality for men is so demonized right that most guys most guys haven't worked through the emotional, the uh, cultural stigma, nor are interested. Um, so it's just something they never, they never get to, you know. Or you just yeah. end up not. Because I've met a lot of gay men, I would never touch with a ten foot pole because they're just, they, they you know, they, you know, like you got to woo me a little bit. What about a ten inch pole? Mm, <laughs> maybe, but like the idea of like there are some really clunky, yeah gay men out sure. there who are just too direct and I'm like wow it got me to respect what it must be like being a straight woman and being hit on by a guy who's yeah. too aggressive he's not into and he won't take no for an answer yeah, yeah. and so like yeah. I've been I've been like wow there are some really assholey gay guys out there right. no matter how fabulous they dress right um, and so for me at this point in my my love life like every once in a while I meet a guy that I'm interested in physically hmm. um for the most part, I, I date and sleep with queer women because women who get queer get me better than straight women. Right. Um, and, and the cultural messaging in, in heteronormative culture is that for women, you know, not every, all of them, but the, but the mythology is that they're looking for a man to complete them. Right. I'm looking for somebody who's complete on their own and, right. I, and I want our lives to overlap in that lovely Venn diagram way. Right, exactly. Um, so for the most part, I tend to to partner with and sleep with lesbians or women who are queer identified. I right. don't normally date straight women um, and I don't normally date men. Right. But every once in a while, there's a straight woman that I'm like, okay, we could do this. And right. there's a guy that I'm like, okay, you know, I've, I've had relationships with men where I've dated them. But for the most part, my world works better when I'm dating queer women. Yeah, it's you know. interesting, this this whole question of, of how, to what extent men are turned away from uh, some sort of inborn bisexuality by culture, you know, and the, and the hoops that men will jump through to, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, uh, one of the episode proposals in this TV show that I'll be pitching here in LA is, um, it's called That's So Gay, or is it? And it's questioning what what is gay after all we we talk about it as if we know what it is what homosexuality yeah. is what gay is but you know two men in prison uh don't consider themselves gay yes situational bisexualities right. a lot of studies have been done or on that. like the only the guy who's getting fucked is gay not the guy yeah. who's doing the fucking right or you know guys on ships to get you know there's a long tradition of sailors and 
other cultures. Um, there's a culture in, in Papua New Guinea where the they believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity. Yeah, and that's one of their rites of passage. So the yeah, so yeah. like the young macho dudes who want to be the best hunters suck as much dick as they can to be the most macho guys later. You know, that's hair on your chest. I mean, not not to put down anyone's culture, but that just makes me giggle. <laughs> well, I told Dan Savage about that, and he said. Uh, can can you give me the exact location? <laughs> Google Map. <laughs> I got uh, a vacation coming up. But yeah. but but so so for me the the bisexuality stuff it's really about how our our culture you know looks at and positions itself and puts value on sexuality yeah um, and identity you know it's just like if you if you were a classical musician and all of a sudden I caught you playing jazz right. Who yeah. are you? Yeah, who are you? How <laughs> dare you? And you're like, I'm just experimenting. It's just a phase. You know, like, but we don't have that stigma around music. And I like to use music as a good example because I think, I think the notes and the spaces between the notes, that's love and intimacy mm-hmm. and relationship and the flavor or the style of how the music comes through you. Um, that's monogamy or poly or swinging mm. or, or, you know, being asexual and not right. wanting to date, like whatever that is. Right. Um, but we don't put that much stigma on music. Although traditionally, like, you know, rock and roll was stigmatized when Elvis and the Beatles, you know, were yeah. doing their thing, you know, so we can kind of be like, oh yeah, we used to, you know, there is stigma in the music world. Yeah. Um, but I think. I look at sexuality and relationship self-expression so much like it's 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 more of a creative process. And for somebody who finds cl- who you know is a classical musician who it never occurs to them to to play jazz cuz they're just happy, more power to you. Right. I don't think you're unevolved right. or or not courageous because you never had sex with the same gender. I right. I don't really care. Right. As long as you don't I mean, as long as the person well, I just isn't hung up really on what it. makes you happy and 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 do you actually have choice right like have you done the thinking for yourself to be like I'm choosing monogamy right rather than I was handed monogamy and I didn't question it yeah I, I use music as well in terms of people say sex is sacred mm-hmm. I say sex can be sacred just as music can be sacred yeah. but sometimes it's just you know the rolling stones you know it's just you're just dancing you're having a good time at a party other times maybe you're in a church listening to you know a Bach toccata that you know is and you sounds have a, like you, God. you have an amazing experience yeah, and for some people an different. anonymous hookup and I do you know emphasize like you know have safer sex but an anonymous hookup for some people would be transformational because they would never have given themselves permission right to ever have that right um and then for some people they they never need to have that like for some couples i I teach a threesome workshop i have couples come who never want to have a threesome they just want to know how to have one so they can talk about it while they're fucking Ah, each other nice like i'm like when that was shared with me i was like awesome use of my workshop never thought of that that makes so much sense right like because they're out exploring the erotic right and with each other to create their turn on right you know whatever that is like i and i'm just you know i sound like a broken record but you know figuring out what makes you happy how to have the courage to ask for it how to make it safe you know those are the important skill sets that we do not teach our children right 
You know, just to end on this, because um, we're, we're running way over, I could talk to you all day. Um, this question of uh, teaching our children. I, I was talking to a friend of mine, my best buddy, actually, he lives in New Hampshire, Nashua. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know Nashua. Um, Go Nashua. We, we grew up together. Uh, yeah, we like, man, his first girlfriend was someone I was going out with. Mm-hmm. I introduced them. They fell in love, you know, sort of yeah. similar. Some of the stuff yeah, yeah. you were talking about, like early on, I was already sort of aware that this doesn't bother me as much as it seems it should because yeah. I love this guy and this woman's great. Yeah. And she and I weren't really a couple anyway. And they are like, hey, and they were together six or seven years. Actually. Wow. Um, but anyhow, I was talking with him recently. He's got teenage kids now really good looking his, his two sons and a daughter the the older son's teenage the other two are coming up and we were talking about these recent cases of you know high school women high school teachers who are older women in their 20s who end you know have sex with 16 year old boys and you know i said so it's a strange thing right because when we were 16 it would have been like yeah fantastic <laughs> you know but you know, how does that feel as a father of a super good looking 16 year old son? And he was like, dude, it would it would freak me out. I yeah. mean, you know, I'd have to I'd want to meet the woman. I'd want to talk. I'd want to you know, get all yeah. the specifics. But as a gut reaction, I'm not into that. Yeah. And, and I said, isn't it interesting that in every other part of life, we say older people should teach younger people. Mm-hmm. Driver's ed. You don't give a kid a car and say, go figure it out with yeah. another 16-year-old. Yeah. See how it goes. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. But with sex, there's something, there's this prohibition against older people teaching younger people. Now, of course, I understand there's lots of room for abuse of power and all sorts of nastiness, right? But it is interesting to me that that's, that's this one realm of life where something so important shouldn't be taught from one generation to the next. Um, I think the framing of it, culturally speaking, you know, has been in the past that sex is, sex is sacred meant for a man and a wife. And that's a journey they should, they should learn on each other together with no guidance, with no guidance. Yeah. Like you have the guidance of your spiritual leader. (laughs) Like that's (laughs) who's often self-proclaimed, you know, abstinent. Yeah. But, but like, that's that's how it was treated yeah. you know or framed or positioned and so that kind of cultural story prohibits any kind of mentorship do you teach kids at all do you ever go to a school um, every once in a while somebody some organizer or program director has the chutzpah to bring me into kids huh. um i love teaching kids yeah. um i think you know you have to teach age appropriate information sure but, you know, for high schoolers and for like eighth graders, especially today with kids being as precocious as they are, but as uninformed in so many ways. They're informed by porn. Well, and visual learners, you go, you know, porn is an entertainment medium. It's not a, an educational medium. And yeah. trying to learn how to be a better lover or relationship person from watching porn is like trying to learn how to drive from watching The Fast and the Furious. Right, right. right? It's just not a good <laughs> idea. Um, you should do a YouTube thing the way Dan Savage and, and Terry, like, 
you know, the whole origin yep. story of that, right? Yeah. Where Dan was saying, I wish I could get to these high schools and talk to them, but they won't let yeah, me you in. Just put, you put stuff out on, on the put media on YouTube, and you make, yeah. it, you make it pop culture trendy and it, and it will trickle down into, into right. they'll get their hands on it. So it's yeah. really about, as an educator for me, it's about creating better content. I target my content at adults. Right. But again, like most adults, emotionally speaking, we're still all wrestling at a seventh and eighth grade level, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, Pretty much what I say, you know, with, if you take the swear words out, um, is probably just as appropriate for seventh, actual seventh graders and eighth right. graders because they'll they'll pay attention to what they need. Right. They'll zone out on all the other stuff. Right. Um, but lecturing at colleges, you know, young adults are, are as starved, if not more starved, for good sex ed information. Um, than ever before because they're they're turning to mainstream porn for their their learning material and the interwebs are so vast that if you don't know exactly what website to go to readaboutsex.com um, you might not find the information that is really the the best information and you know in pop culture you know as much as I love supporting the editors at, at major magazines women's magazines with getting better information a lot of those writers are writing things on deadline and they're not sex experts right and so they're researching the web too for advice right exactly. you know and then yeah. you've got you know 50 shades of gray gaining popularity and some magazine is like we need a 50 shades of gray article you've got some intern or some you know assistant sure. editor searching the web and then this is how you end up with with uh you know, an article that, that as a fun tip is, you know, use a fork to, to, you know, gently, you know, tease and scrape your partner's genitals. And I'm just sitting there reading it going, I, <laughs> I, I could teach you how to properly use a fork, yeah. but you probably shouldn't be using, I mean, me as a, as a pe person who owns a penis, I don't want you coming anywhere near my penis with a fork. No, your no. mileage may vary. Yeah. Some people are into that, but I wouldn't, you know, again, we have to teach people that magazine articles are an incomplete source of information. Right. So how do we teach our children and how do we teach our fellow human beings to be good researchers? Not everybody's a research scientist no, like you, no, right? Hard. Not everybody's a geek like me. So how do we have to teach people how to think about sex so that they can figure out, oh, that's good information, that's bad information. And critical thinking around intimacy and sexuality, where is that happening? That's not happening on Rush Limbaugh. No. Happening on readaboutsex.com. Yeah. And uh, right here right on here your podcast. Hollywood. All right. Well, that has been an, a long, uh, arduous <laughs> journey, hasn't it, my listeners? Yeah, we're, we're at an hour and a half. We'll see if that gets edited down. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tangentially Speaking this week with Reed Mahalko, sex geek, man about town. <laughs> Bisexual, and, former football player. And just all around jackass. Probably one of the few men qualified to give uh, a workshop both on cunnilingus and blowjob giving. I, yeah. 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 And, and I can throw in some martial arts. <laughs> some martial arts. <laughs> He'll kick your ass and then fuck it. All right. Oh, wow. And, and, and cut to commercial. <laughs> cut Thanks, to Chris. commercial. <laughs> Thanks, man. That was fun. Bye. He said, baby, what's the big deal? you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.